This episode of the Policing Matters podcast is sponsored by the Master of Science in Law Enforcement and Public Safety Leadership Program at the University of San Diego. Learn how this nationally ranked online program can help you be a force for change at san diego.edu/slash police one. Welcome back. You're listening to Policing Matters on PoliceOne.com. I'm your host, Jim Dudley. Hey, police officers, as I have said before, are often terrific storytellers. I've heard so many colleagues and even myself say that we're going to sit down and write or clickety-clack on the computer and put out that novel or, you know, the book. And in reality, very few of us actually sit down and start typing those keys It's a project that surely can be demanding, even if it's just to sit down and recount those funny or weird stories, things we've experienced along the way throughout our careers. Fiction, to me, seems to be an easy route where we can make things up. Nonfiction writing calls for a different approach. Writing about harrowing experiences or tragedies can even be painful. Well, our guests today are Sarah Callums, who graduated with a bachelor's degree in news editorial journalism at the University of North Texas in Denton, Texas. She's the senior associate editor of PoliceOne.com and CorrectionsOne.com. Her dad, Jim Callums, is a retired member of the Phoenix PD and LAPD. His book, Unwavering Honor, is about his career in those departments and also about personal tragedy. Hey, welcome to Policing Matters, Sarah and Jim Callums. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us, Jim. Yeah, great. Uh, looking at the book and and looking at your career, uh, I want to ask you first, Sarah, uh, you recently turned the tables. You're an editor, right? And you see people writing all the time and you're, you're correcting and editing. Uh, how's it been watching your dad write his book, uh, knowing and experiencing, you know, what he experienced then? Yeah, well, just before we got on here, I told my dad that I didn't like being interviewed, that I liked to be the one to interview. <laughs> so he's like, why are you so nervous? And I'm like, well, because I like to be the one asking questions. Um, but when my dad finally decided to sit down and write this book, you know, I was really proud of him writing obviously comes very natural to me. Uh, My dad's way more of a talker. He can talk your ear off all day long. Um, But writing is just not something that, you know, is like his first route of, um, of talking. And so when he sat down, when he wrote it, it was over COVID. And I think everyone was trying to come up with ways to keep themselves busy. And there was plenty of time on his hands to really sit down and talk with some of his colleagues and, and get something really important out there. Yeah. So Jim, you heard my opening. What finally moved you to putting pen to paper? We heard COVID was, was one of the um, issues. What else, what, what really motivated you? Well, you know, uh, over the years, uh, I don't know if you did, Jim, but I kept all my old police reports. We used to make copies of them. And I was cleaning up my garage one day. I was reading through some of these and I thought, you know, I think I need to sit down and write a book because I think people will realize what we really do out there in the streets. And uh, some of the profile cases that I I had the opportunity to work on, I don't think people heard all the behind the scenes stuff that happened. And uh, I thought this, this is a good way for me to sit down and I got a lot of time on my hands and tell everybody 
how it played out. That's how I got started. Yeah. So, I mean, like I said, nonfiction is tough because you're dealing with facts and you've got the reports. That's great. But what about the characters in the book? How did you reconcile, you know, talking about people that, you know, are either living or, or dead and right. and they played a role in your book? Well, how'd you make that work? Well, uh, of course, I contacted an attorney and uh, they, they, they just told me you could use people's names that are deceased because there's nothing they can do. They're not here anymore. Uh, old supervisors I work for, you know, I've, I've listened, but I, I really portrayed them in a very positive manner. Some of the suspects I have in there, uh, I, I listed their names, but you had to put a disclaimer in there, alleged suspects. Mm-hmm. So that's how you pretty much get out of it. Um, but I kept, I kept it as factual as I saw it and how it played out to me on everything I wrote about. Yeah, did you did you do some follow-up interviews with them? Hey, do you remember this case? What were you right. thinking? I did do that. I talked to a couple of my old watch commanders and, uh, you know, they told me, yeah, you're spot on just the way you're talking about it. So I wanted to make sure I wasn't missing something in between. Yeah, great. So, yeah, when you said that, you know, it was nonfiction, then you said you portrayed your supervisors in a good light. I was wondering, maybe dipped into a little fiction from time to time. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, of course, we've all worked for supervisors that weren't very nice to us. Well, if, if someone tells you that they did, they're liars, you know. So uh, I have one chapter in there where I talk about one of the supervisors in there when I was working for Phoenix. And I think he ultimately, his goal was to make sure I ne- never got hired on the LAPD. And uh, I took that personal. I was a lot younger back then. Yeah, but looking back on it, I should just let it go. But uh, I was the kind of guy where I'd say, what's your problem with me? Why are you following me around or why are you doing this? And he would always play dumb with me. You know, it was part of his game. And uh, when I did finally uh, get out of the department, people later on told me his ultimate goal was trying to make sure I didn't get there. Because he had a personal vendetta for whatever reasons. I never did nothing to the guy, but uh, there's people out there like that. Let's let's be honest. Yeah, for sure. I'm sure every one of our listeners have, you know, toiled under, uh, you know, a tough supervisor for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Um, so in talking about somebody like that, did you, did, was, was this a person that you talked to before you wrote the, his chapter? No, uh, I just mentioned him in there, but I changed his name. Oh, there you go. And, okay. uh, you know, uh, totally different than what his true name was, but people that know me, the people that I worked with, they knew exactly who I was talking about. <laughs> of course. So, you know how it goes. So who'd you, who, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Sarah. Hey, but you did include the correct names of people who did make a really big influence. Oh, yeah, definitely. I did. Yeah. Yeah. So let me ask you, who did you write the book for? Who do you want to read this? Uh, I wrote it for the street cop and the people that are in the academy to see what they're getting themselves into. Because uh, not everything's like you see on TV, as you know, Jim, you know, where they get in the shootout and, you know, they're back in the street the next day. It just doesn't work that way. Yeah. So uh, I, I had the, the guys that trained me years ago were Vietnam veteran era people. And uh, they told me the, the best thing you can do is do your 20 and get out. So, I mean, they gave me a lot of good uh, feedback when I was early in my career. And looking back on it, they were spot on. So it's kind of, kind of nice. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I think it's important to chronicle our history in policing and the advancements that we've made over the years. But I think... Like you say, I mean, I know you want it for officers and, and new recruits, but 
I think the general public needs to read these kinds of books mm-hmm. as well to see mm-hmm. what goes on behind the scenes. And, you know, they think cops are robots and they don't really see that, you know, the other side, the downside of, of policing. I had, uh, uh, I self-published on Amazon and, uh, I had, uh, I've got all five-star reviews, except I think I have one three-star review. <clears throat> and most of the, I've had some people that were just regular citizens that read it <clears throat> and didn't understand what we really went through from day to day. So that was kind of cool to see that. Yeah, nice. Well, maybe you could trace that three-star review back to that lieutenant, even though he... Yeah, <laughs> it might have been him. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> so... What were the main stories over your career that you absolutely had to get into the book? I uh, There's probably three I put in there that were really important to me. Uh, the, the first one was the Michael Jackson thing. I was the guy that wrote the original report on that. That was me that started all that. And the second one was uh, I wrote about the uh, Northridge earthquake. Uh, that was a really... Uh, uh, really intriguing one. They they wrote this poor guy off as dead, and uh, I joked around with my partner. I said, "Come on, let's go find this guy." And uh, the last one that I, I really it was really hard for me to write. It took me over a month. I kept going back and changing where I talked about my daughter Stephanie. So that was pretty tough. Hmm. So uh, those three uh, were the most I, I really enjoyed writing about. Looking back on it, yeah, I want to ask you a little bit more about Stephanie, but. Sarah, you lived through most of the timeline of the stories that your dad writes about in Unwavering Honor. Do you remember the stories from a different perspective growing up? As I mean, they were happening in real time when you're growing up. Yeah, so I was pretty young when my dad was a police officer. When he had graduated from the academy in L.A., I was actually, I think I just turned one. Uh, so obviously I don't have any concrete memories of that. I was a little bit older, like around 10 when he did retire finally. Um, so I do have some memories of that, but those really aren't talked about much in the book. So for me, uh, this is something that I wrote about in my article as well. I learned probably more about my dad by reading his book than I really ever knew about his policing career before. Yeah, that's interesting, Jim. I guess... You know, I had two young sons as well, and I remember coming home and didn't talk a lot about what was happening. Sometimes I'd tell a funny story, but I'm sure you were pretty protective as well. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't talk about my my career. I talked to my partners about it. You know, we all. You know, you go to the the suicides or the uh, you know the you you joke about it because that's your way of getting through it. Really, people think you're sick, but. I'd like to see some of them just like you would go there and, and handle something like that. It's not really easy to do. And uh, it's cop humor, as you know, and that's what gets you through your shift, whatever that is. But uh, I never told my wife about anything I did for the most part. Uh, the only thing that I thought was funny was uh, uh, I came home one day. She goes, well, hi, how was your day? I you know, same old stuff. And I was late getting home, and that was when I wrote that Michael Jackson uh, report. They wouldn't let me go home until I finished it. And then I had to go drive it downtown to Parker Center and hand carry it to uh, the sexual assault detectives. And uh, I had a seal in an envelope. It was crazy what they wanted me to do. So and then I just got my car and drove home and got home and went to bed. And I got up and 
uh, one thing they did tell me before I left is, don't you ever talk to anybody about this, not even your wife. And I go, okay, I won't. So uh, I go home, go to bed, and I get up. My wife's got the TV yet. She goes, what did you do last night? And I go, what do you need? She goes, you're all over the news uh, with Michael Jackson. I go, you got to be kidding me. I go, they told me not to say anything. They go, well, obviously somebody said something. So it all went from there. So yeah, uh, yeah I, it was it was quite a thing. Yeah, I gosh, remember all the people outside? Uh, with what was he calling that place? Fantasyland or something? Neverland. 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 Yeah. Well, it was everywhere land uh, for a time. Uh, did you get any pressure from supervisors about what was in the report and what to change? Oh yeah, I mean, uh, well, they didn't read it. The watch commander didn't even read it. He just had me take it down to the sex assaults and drop it off. But uh, uh, the captain told me, he goes, if you talk to anybody about this, we're going to bring you to a board of rights and terminate you. This is really important that you better not talk to anybody. So I won't say a word to nobody. And uh, I had gone home, of course, went to bed. And like I told you what, what my wife said, like went to work the next day. And uh, I walk in, and one of the old timers, uh, George, uh, he goes, "Hey, there he is, Mister Hollywood." You know, I go, "Hey, knock it off, George." He goes, "Every every so and so has been calling here, wanting to talk to you." I go, "Well, I got nothing to say." You know, he goes, "Wait, do you go back to your mailbox? There's a whole stack of pinkies back there. At least to write, remember, we used to write uh, notes on those." Sure enough, there was like things from the uh, L.A. Times and uh, the New York Times and. Uh, places in England, they all wanted to interview me. And I remember looking at those and the captain comes up behind me. He goes, don't even think about calling those people. And I said, well, I'm not going to. He goes, I hope you didn't talk to anybody. I go, yeah, I didn't even talk to my wife. He goes, well, maybe you should bring her some flowers. So maybe it'd make it better for her. <laughs> nice. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. So, uh, yeah, I was real tight-lipped about it, but somebody obviously spilled the beans, but it wasn't me. Yeah. Well, I mean, we, you know, about so many people hanging around a station, you can't keep a lid on something like that. Right. Um, so, Sarah, your dad's going to work every day. He's, he's carrying a gun. You're worried about him or you're wondering what he does at work? So my dad, when I was younger, he used to take me, obviously, in his patrol car to school sometimes. And so I think, again, as a kid, I don't really think you're thinking about that, you know, when you're young, you see police officers and you just think they're your heroes. And I just always thought my dad was the coolest dad ever. You know, we would pull up to the school parking lot and all the kids would point and stare. And I'm like, yeah, that's my dad. Um, every now and then, like someone would think that like I got in trouble or something and I would kind of play a riff on that. Like, oh yeah, yeah. I got in trouble last night and this guy dropped me off. Um, but no, I mean, I think, more than anything. And even today, he's just my hero. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, you wrote a pretty moving article about your dad and, and his, his first book. Yeah. Well, it's weird because so when he's the book that he wrote, he's about the same age as I am now. Um, my dad and my mom have four kids. I have two little boys. And so when I was reading his book, you know, I asked him, I was like, how, how did you go home, take off your police hat and put on your dad hat? Because I mean, just working where I work right now on policeman.com, it's, it's heavy news, right? And for a police officer, even now, and even back then when he was working, it was even heavier. Um, and so I, I just, when I was reading his book, I was like, I don't know how you did it. And there were four of us. 
and we were all very close in age. Um, I even asked my mom, you know, I was like, were there ever any days where it was hard? And she was like, oh yeah, there were plenty of days when he would come home and, you know, sit on the couch and you could tell that something was bothering him, but he tried really hard to stay in that moment. Hmm. Yeah. I want to, I want to ask you both about that, about the separating the the work life and the personal life in the book and in reality, right? I mean, different times, you know, 20 years or so ago, uh, we don't have the social media spotlight on police as we do today. And the, the attitudes towards police were really different then. Um, we could drive our kids to school in a on or off duty car and not think twice about it. Probably not so much, unfortunately, today. But uh, I want to talk about that in just a moment and thank our sponsor. Do you want to be a better leader? Who doesn't, right? The University of San Diego has created an incredible online master's degree specifically for law enforcement professionals. The Master of Science in Law Enforcement and Public Safety Leadership Program was developed by law enforcement for law enforcement, and it's consistently ranked as one of the best online programs in the country. Whether you're preparing for promotion or simply want to be the best leader you can be, the MS LEPSOL program will help you be a force for change, affordable, online, and endorsed by law enforcement. Learn more at San Diego edu slash police one and we're back and i'm speaking with sarah and jim callums jim wrote a book called unwavering honor and uh, it's about his career with the lapd and the phoenix pd jim what was your family's reaction to including personal information in the book uh, any hesitancy there no not really uh like sarah said they were kind of surprised some of the things that uh I, I guess had the opportunity to to deal with, if you want to call it that. But other than that, everybody's been very supportive. And everybody uh, now asks me, so when's the second one coming out? So uh, you know, they've been very supportive. That's great. And did anybody say, hey, wait a minute, it didn't really happen like that? Or No, never had anybody tell me that. No, okay. No. All right. So shift in a little bit. I'm really sorry to hear about your other daughter, Stephanie. Can you tell us about Stephanie Lynn? Sure. Stephanie was our oldest daughter, and uh, she always wanted to be a school teacher, just like her mom. And uh, she graduated from Texas A&M University in College Station, Texas, as a, a teacher. And she moved back to North Texas, where she uh, got a job working for the Richardson IST School District which is a suburb of Dallas. And uh, she was an ESL teacher, which is English, English second language teacher. And uh, she worked in what they call a Title I school. These are underprivileged kids that are being raised by a grandma or a single mom or maybe a grandpa. And uh, Stephanie just took it upon herself. She tutored them before school and after school. She bought them clothes. She bought them food. Because these are these are these are kids that are being discarded in our society, unfortunately, and she used her own money to do that. And uh, one, one story I do want to tell you: you know, we have a scholarship in her name after she she passed away uh, ten years ago this July. And uh, we had a young gentleman come up to my wife and I. We we're giving a scholarship away to him. Never met him before, but we went by what his uh, his transcripts looked like; they were excellent. 
And he said he wanted to speak to us on the side. And I said, sure, is there something wrong? And he goes, no. He goes, I just want to talk to you about your daughter. I said, okay. So uh, he, he just told me, you know, if it wasn't for your daughter, I wouldn't be staying here today. She tutored me before school and after school. She gave me food. Uh, she, I was at best a D student when I first knew your daughter. And he goes, now I'm, I'm graduating with honors from my high school and I'm going to go to medical school. So, I mean, that just goes to show you how far she went to make sure that kids like him got a fair shake. So uh, that's why I, you know, that's why I wrote the book too, because I wanted people to know about that. And then I don't make any money from the book. All the proceeds I make go right to her foundation. We have a 501c3 organization. That's awesome. And and our listeners can check out the website underneath the show notes to see more about the foundation. Yes. So uh, what was the effect on you two and the rest of the family? Um, what kind of support did you get after that? Uh, of course, it was very hard. You know, uh, you don't expect to lose a child. You know, growing up, you, you know, eventually your parents are going to pass away. But to uh, have your child do that, it's pretty hard. Um, there, there's, there's a thing in my book where I call it uh, reflections, where I've had to go... Uh, uh, give death notifications to families, kids that were killed in, in a car wreck or kids that committed suicide. You know, that was really hard to do. And I'm sure you can, reiter- you can expect that because I'm sure you had to do it yourself. But, you know, I've had people slam their door in my face and uh, call us names and try to hit us. It, it wasn't personal. It's just that they're very upset. And I, I remember I used to tell my, my partner and I said, you know, this, I feel bad, but at least we can walk away from this. And uh, but well, like with Stephanie, I couldn't walk away from that. That's that's too close to home. So uh, uh, it was hard. Yeah. Well, how old were you, Sarah, at the time? Yeah. So I was twenty-one. I had just graduated from college. Um, Stephanie and I were best friends, <clears throat> very tight. Um, it was extremely hard for me. I have written a couple articles about it. Um, again, just because I think for me, writing is therapeutic and that has been probably one of the biggest things that's ever happened to me. And the most devastating things that has happened to me is losing my sister. Um, it's actually why I started working here, (laughs) um, 10 years ago, you know, something as simple as her boyfriend giving her CPR, she might've still been here. Mm. Um, so I started looking around on websites about how to get, um, how to know more about CPR and how to get certified in CPR. And then a job listing popped up for EMS one. And I don't know if it was just the right time or, or what, but, uh, I applied for that job and I got that job. And part of my mission on working on fire rescue one and EMS one was to make sure that everyone was educated enough to help save life. Yeah, no, that's powerful. And yeah, maybe you're meant to be here. Maybe. Yeah. So that's what's kept me going this whole time. I've, I've been here nearly 10 years. And uh, obviously, uh, police kind of runs in my veins, I could never actually be a responder myself, I have the deepest respect for them. But this is my way to, you know, give back to that community. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, Jim, did you feel that um, writing was therapy in, in this regard? Yeah, it was. When I wrote that that chapter called Reflections, uh, I went over it 
I, I would write and I go, I don't like the way I wrote that. And I go back and change it. You know, I probably changed it 20 or 30 times, you know, <clears throat> and I'd have my wife read it. Of course, she was getting upset because, you know, now it's, it's taking her back and that's not what I was trying to do. I just wanted to keep it as factual as I could. But, uh, you know, looking back on it, even though everybody was upset when we had her in the ER, I was in cop mode. I knew exactly what we had to do, you know, because as you know, we, we've all been in tons of ERs in our career. And you know what's good, what isn't good. And this wasn't looking good. Yeah. And we had a, an ER doctor that was sitting up in his hands. It wasn't doing anything about it. And... Um, I said, we need to get her out of here. We need to get her to a trauma center. And he goes, well, I need to get a neurologist over here. I said, well, whatever. I said, but we need to, we need to care flight her out of here, like right now. He goes, well, I can't do that. I said, well, I can. And I picked up the phone and I called a friend of mine who owns CareFlight out here. And he had a helicopter on the deck of that hel- of the hospital within minutes. And I think if they wouldn't have got her out of there when they did, she would have died there that night. So, yeah. Uh, that um, flight paramedic is obviously a really good friend of my dad's. And that was actually the first time I'd ever met him. And I was still in her room when he came and he let me, once they flew to the new hospital that she went to, he let me go up in the elevator with them. Um, and, you know, just let me walk beside her as they set her up in her ICU room. And um, again, just like being 21 and not really ever experiencing something like that. I, it was just, so many emotions happening. I went and sat in the hallway because I got rushed out. And, you know, this is a man who has worked in this profession for decades. And he stopped what he was doing, told his other colleagues to take over and came and sat with me in the hallway um, until my parents got there. And I'll never forget that day. And I'll never forget what he did for me. You know, he just sat there. We didn't talk. It was silent. And he just he just let me have that, um, you know, human interaction while I waited for my parents to get there. It was, again, it's something that I've written about before, and it's what really motivated me to start working on EMS One ten years ago. Yeah. So, yeah, tragic story and um, a big part of the book. The other part is is your exploits with the the PDs, the police departments. Uh, Jim, what's your advice for somebody thinking about writing a book? Where where do they start or what's... Well, first of all, uh, you got to want to do it, I guess. Uh, I've had partners like, oh, yeah, I need to write a book. And they never do. And I laugh at them. You know, they laughed at me when I said, I'm writing a book. They go, yeah, right. I go, oh, I yeah. am. I go, you'll see in about a year when I get done. That's how long it took me. But uh, I think... Uh, do your research, talk to people. Um, like I mentioned to you earlier, t- talk to people that you get their permission to put their names in the book. Sometimes if you even have to get them to sign a waiver in case they come back later saying, hey, I didn't tell you to do that. Well, what does this say then? So I didn't have to do that. I kept all my email notes just in case I printed them off when I did speak to people. Uh, some of the names I did change there because there were people I didn't really care for and I changed the names totally, but the story was correct. But the names were changed. <laughs> <laughs> to protect the, well, protect maybe the not so innocent. Whatever you want to call it. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, uh, I kept it as factual as I could. All the stories are factual. I mean, there's there's a guy that I used to work for that read my book. He says, man, you're spot on with everything you wrote about it. I said, well, yeah, there's no reason for me to lie about it or embellish about it. You know, it's just, 
I wanted people to see what we do out there. And uh, I, I remember the uh, um, uh, first time uh, I ran across a, a person that got killed on, on an interstate, you know, and I was brand new. And I remember talking to the coroner and I said, why is that all turning black over there? He goes, well, you must be new. And I go, yeah, I am new. And he goes, well, that's what happens to blood when he hits after a while, you know. So things like that you learn as you, you graduate through your career. So um, sometimes they're not good. But, I mean, those are those are memories that are etched in your mind forever. They never go away. I mean, yeah, I we often talk about you know the amount of trauma that uh, police experience on the job, and I know you served in a, a good long career in LAPD. You're certainly active. I'm sure you've seen more than your share of traumatic events, and I don't think you know people realize that. And then you put it on paper. And to people reading it, these are like are just, you know, uh, tremendous events that, you know, you move on and go on to the next call, right? Or then the next day you experience something like that. Uh, do you talk about, um, you know, we talked about early on in our careers when maybe the bar was the place to go after a really traumatic event. Um, do, do you get into that? Uh, no, but I think I'm going to talk about that in my second book. Uh, I don't really talk about it very much. I talk about a little bit of how we used to make jokes, make light of things just to get through it. You know, it, it, the, the, usually the, the, the veterans could see you struggling and they would be the ones to come up to you and nudge you and say, hey, you know, you know, they make a, you know, a joke about it to try to get you through it, you know, to get you over the hump. But even today, you know, uh, even though I've been out of it for a long time, I drive around, I see things that happen. It sparks a memory to me. And I'll go, oh, I remember when I did this, this, this. And I hadn't thought about that in probably 25 years, you know. And uh, they never go away. Those those memories are there. And like I, I remember asking a, a training officer years ago, I go, how do you get through this? You know, and he goes, he goes you got to picture a box. and put those bad things in a box and just put it away. And he goes, because if you don't do that, you're going to have a hard time. And that's what I did. I put it in a box. And it uh, got me through it. So... Yeah, I think that was the, you know, we had a different kind of peer support back then and right. compartmentalized a lot of that. And now, you know, it's just the opposite. There's it's a still lots of right. Yeah, we need to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. So a- what's your advice from the editorial point of view uh, to somebody thinking about writing a book? I've heard that there are, what are they called? Pantsers and planners. And the planners, of course, you know, do all their storyboards and things like that. And then a pantser is somebody writing by the seat of their pants. Okay. <laughs> I feel like I'm somewhere in the middle then. <laughs> um, I don't know. I think, again, like, I think you should just sit down and really think it through. Um, it is a really big commitment. It can take anywhere from a year to maybe five years, depending upon how long your book is or what you have to talk about in your book. Um, I think it's an important step to maybe talk to the people that you're going to write about. Um, Because again, like my dad said, maybe they have a different perspective than you. Um, You know, a lot of these stories were a long time ago that my dad wrote about, and he's fortunate enough to have those notes written. Um, But, you know, I think planning is important and I'm not a really big storyboard person, (laughs) but I like outlining um, and I, I think finding someone that you really trust to read through your chapters is a really good step. 
Um, my dad did have an editor that helped him, uh, you know, finish up the book. But for the large majority, my mom looked at it. And I mean, it's probably surprising for you to hear this, but my mom also learned more about my dad <laughs> by reading the book too. And they've been married for over 30 years. So those are my two cents. Not surprising. Hey, I really want to thank you both for your time. Uh, what's next for you both? Uh, where can our listeners find your articles and books? Jim, you mentioned you're working on another book. Yeah, I'm working on another book. I don't have a title yet. I didn't get the title done. Wavering Honor until almost uh, the final editing was done. That was that was the hardest thing to do. Uh, the editor told me, she goes, you're just going to have to read it through yourself and come through something to, you know, whatever you want to do. And I wanted a day, but originally never quit, never, because they used to scream that in our face. You never quit. You get your teeth knocked out, you swallow, you keep fighting. You know, that's that's the way it was when I went through the academy. It was very aggressive. And if you could hold it together, they kicked you out. So I wanted a day, but never quit, never. And it was taken by a, a Navy SEAL, I think. So uh, I kept... Uh, put things like in a dictionary on Google. And I, I saw one thing came up with unwavering. I go, that's kind of cool. So my wife and I were on a walk and it's like somebody hit me behind the head. And I said, I looked at her and said, what do you think of the name unwavering honor? She goes, I like it. That's perfect. And that's how that came about. So book two is going to be a little bit different. Uh, I'm going to talk about some heroes I worked with and uh, things that they did, not necessarily what I did, but I was there and uh, some of these people aren't here anymore. And I think they need to be recognized. Let people know that there was heroes out there in the street that made sure other people kept safe because of them. And that's my way of honoring them. And I'm going to have a thing on, uh, I'm not going to call it PTSD. I'm just going to call it uh, PT. Because uh, I don't think it's a disease. I think it's something that's given to you and you got to deal with it. And uh, I've already interviewed some dispatchers because they're basically the front line. They're hearing all the screams and everything before we get it. And I'm going to interview some uh, survivors, how their husbands are killed in the line of duty and what they're going through, that kind of stuff. So it's going to be a little bit different. I'll have some funny stuff in there. I'm going to write about the academy training, about how the PT staff used to just torture us, you know, to no end. But they did it for a reason. I'm going to talk about that. So there's a lot of cool things I'm going to list in there. But uh, one thing I think is funny, I'll, I'll let the cat out of the bag. My first chapter is called Van Eyes 9855. And that uh, that was my call sign when I was uh, brand new in the street. My partner, Jim Friedman, uh, he was quite a character. And I, I didn't meet him yet. I remember going down to the locker room. A Van Nuys, the old Van Nuys station. And uh, I was looking around, I'm like, boy, this, this place smells down here. <laughs> and I'm looking at the lockers and they're, they're all beat up. And, they, and I get to my locker and it's got a big dent in it. And, and I, I, I looked around, I thought to myself, I go, well, I feel like I walked in the 1970s here. I go, so where's Bumper Morgan at? So that's, that's, that's how I started that chapter off. Yeah. So, Bumper Morgan, an old Joe, Joe Wombau character. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that's, that's going to be a funny chapter. I mean, I worked with some really cool guys at the Van Nuys station. So uh, that's great. Yeah. I don't think the public uh, hears about those kinds of stories enough, right. To really understand. That was when the Gulf war hit, you know, a lot of things were going on back then. So. Yeah. Looking forward to it. Sarah, what's, what's next for you? What are you, what are you writing about? 
Oh, man. So I don't know if you've seen on Police One, but we have an over 40 profile series that I've been working on recently. Um, and it kind of goes hand in hand with what, you know, my dad always talks to me about is, is honoring those police officers who have served a long period of time. So with this series, um, we've actually been featuring, I've been writing some in our columnists have been writing some, we've been featuring some officers who are still active with over 40 years of law enforcement experience. <laughs> um, so we have two right now that are live. One is going live later this week. Um, and I think we have like three more in the pipeline that are being written and edited. So it's my, uh, it's my little baby right now. I think it's really important to tell those stories. Um, you know, all of these men and women that we've been interviewing, they have a reason why they continue to work. You know, I mean, I think finding uh, an officer with over 40 years, I thought it was next to impossible. <laughs> um, but I have gotten email after email after email since we've started the series of like, um, you know, I want to like suggest this person or, you know, this person has been on my department for a really long time. No one's heard their story before. So yeah, I mean, it's just really exciting features and profiles is my bread and butter. It's something that I really enjoy. Uh, it's much easier for me to <laughs> sit down and ask the questions. Uh, so yeah, that's what I've been working on. I have a column on Police One. It's called um, Frontline Voices. So it kind of is in a similar vein. And again, just really making sure that the public knows that there are cops out there who are good and are great. And just because we're seeing these you know, negative news stories in mainstream media doesn't mean that all police officers are like that. Right. And if I could add something too, Jim, this job's a calling. This isn't somebody that's working at uh, uh, Vons one day and then they want to be a cop the next day. You know, I mean, this is something that people want to do their whole life. I mean, I knew I wanted to do it when I was in grade school. I mean, either in the military or serve the public in another way. Um, but this job isn't easy, as you know. I mean, people need to understand that any time you can get seriously hurt or killed. And uh, that's why they always said, you know, Listen to your tactics instructors. They'll think you know it all. Every day should be a learning experience for you. The people that said, I know it all, those are the ones that always got hurt. So I wanted to, to give you my last thought on that, that uh, this job isn't for the weak. I mean, it's somebody that really wants to do it, wants to do it right. Yeah, so it's apropos that your book is Unwavering Honor. I, I certainly agree with everything you just said. We are going to put some links in the show notes below for our listeners. And hey, thank you too for, for taking time talking with us today. We appreciate it. All right. And to our listeners, hey, thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Hey, let me know who you'd like to hear from and what you'd like to hear about. Drop me a line at policingmatters at police1.com, an email to policingmatters at police1.com, and we will definitely get back to you. And uh, hey, stay safe out there. Thanks for listening. Talk to you again real soon.